I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 67 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Fred Knight. Fred is the CEO and founder of CyberGRX. Since founding the company in 2015, Fred has led the creation of the world's first global third-party risk management exchange. During his tenure at CyberGRX, Fred has been responsible for the overall direction of the company as the company's chief strategist for securing global partnerships, leading investments, and overseeing management into corporate execution. Prior to CyberGRX, Fred led the security and compliance departments at Bridgewater Associates, an investment management firm overseeing about $160 billion for 350 of the largest and most sophisticated global institutional clients. Fred holds a bachelor's in civil engineering from Princeton University and an MBA from Columbia Business School. In this episode, we discuss the growing cybersecurity scene in Denver, starting in compliance, managing supply chain and vendor risk, current and upcoming regulations, compliance versus security, benchmarking, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Fred, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for being on. So we're, we're actually sitting in your beautiful offices in, in Denver, but we were just talking before we hit recording. You're, you're originally from New York before you came out to Denver and now experience what people are complaining is bad traffic, which for us is like nothing. But what brought you out to Denver to kind of, you know, get into where you are? Was it an impetus to kind of start with your business out here, or was there something else that brought you out here first? It was actually a combination of things. So um, born and raised on the East Coast and spent most of my life living in New York, uh, let's see, Baltimore, D.C., Connecticut. Um, and when I um, started to uh, think about starting CyberGRX, one of the things I realized was I wanted to uh, look at a new place. And so uh, my wife and I looked at a variety of different places to live. But more interestingly, we looked at a couple of people I was starting the company with, looked at um, areas of growing cyber talent across the United States. And you have obviously the coasts in California and then New York, Boston, DC. But interestingly, real pockets growing in the kind of the Denver Boulder area in the um, San Antonio, Austin area, kind of Raleigh a little bit, you have Salt Lake City, et cetera. But really stood out kind of Austin and Denver were the two primary places. And uh, I looked at both. And when I got off the plane in Austin, it was like 112 <laughs> degrees. And I said, okay, that's tough. I uh, came out here and it's, it's beautiful and it's been beautiful ever since. So haven't looked back. Yeah, I, I almost feel like the same boat. And it was a lot of the reason for me coming out here too, is the, uh, I almost felt it's been a little bit of, um, I feel like always necessarily fly below the radar, but people don't realize what a talent pool we have. We have some of the largest chapters for things like ISSA. We have just, you, know, you go up and down the I-36 corridor, there's, you know, you have Webroot, Logarithm, you got, I mean, you have a sol- we have a solid talent and tech pool out here that I don't think people necessarily appreciate at times. They're starting to. It's, it's neat. Um, and both from the technology and then also cybersecurity. Uh, and you have, I mean, just it's on the street, you're paying identity, you have ProtectWise, Red Canary, et cetera. They're all here. And what's neat is it's, an, it's a really open and welcoming community. When I, you know, first 
couple of weeks I was here, I had already met the, uh, the kind of the leads for each of those companies, and they were saying, "How can I help?" And it was an interesting because I'm a New Yorker, and I'm like, "Why? Okay, what's their angle? Yeah, right. What are they, what are they trying <laughs> to get out my of wallet? This? What happened?" <laughs> and, uh, and no, people are genuinely trying to build a community here, which is really uh, fun in that sense. But um, the from a technology standpoint, it's interesting when we first came here. Um, my uh, VC backers basically said, well, why Denver? What is that? And now they're saying, hey, can you introduce me to people? Can I, I want to understand more. Let me see what's going on here. We've recruited a lot of people from either the kind of New York area or the Bay Area. And a lot of them are like, I'm just ready to leave. Yeah. So uh, Denver is, is definitely up and coming in that sense. Yeah, we're seeing, you know, even I think there was some study came out, you know, it's the, one of the number one places for millennials, second place for retirees. I'm kind of squeezing the middle a little bit, but, <laughs> but I definitely get it. Um, but what what are some of the things? Well, actually, let's talk a little bit more about CyberGRX. I mean, what your background was in business. I mean, you have a lot of kind of business pedigrees when you look down your LinkedIn profile. But what areas were you kind of focused in prior to doing CyberGRX, and what draw you to cybersecurity? Yeah, it's interesting. I kind of fell into cybersecurity. I um, I my as you mentioned, my career was very much in kind of investments, uh, and then did some consulting around kind of strategy and growth, uh, really helping people figure out how to optimize capital allocation, where you're going to grow, what are new ventures and such you can do. I um, left, I was at McKinsey, and I, I left and joined a firm called Bridgewater Associates uh, based in Connecticut. And um, Bridgewater is a very unique place that basically said uh, to run a department, you may you can separate out management expertise and subject matter expertise. And so I came in as a management expert to help run the compliance department, having absolutely no idea what compliance even was. And kind of ramped up quickly with a partner in that who is a former SEC prosecutor and extraordinarily well-versed in, uh, in compliance. Uh, that went well, and then I moved on to end up running our, uh, the security department at Bridgewater. And I ran that for three years uh, with a team of, you know, the person who helped run staff and physical security for me was the former head of counterterrorism for the FBI. And the person who helped run cybersecurity for me was the uh, head of uh, security for UBS and a variety of places before that. So definitely strong subject matter experts, <clears throat> but that was my introduction. And what's neat about security is it's really just a um, kind of logical problem solving. It's a matter of identifying the risk, what are the things to potentially buy down that risk, and what's the trade-off you're willing to take? What's the kind of chances you're willing to take? Um, and that you know, resonated for me based on kind of the investment philosophy and such that I'd had previously. Um, so that, that was the introduction to it. And when I decided to leave Bridgewater, I actually was introduced to um, the, at the time, Chief Information Security Officer at Blackstone. And he and I talked about the idea for what became CyberGRX. Gotcha. And, and the main focus being, and I'm probably overly simplifying it by saying it has a lot to do with third-party vendor management to, to a degree. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, so basically, it's interesting. So if you think about how uh, companies have evolved over the last you know, one to two decades, if you will, um, people historically were pretty self-contained. You know, I had my own legal department. I you know, cut checks through my own payroll uh, team. Uh, we manufactured all of our own products. And now people are truly kind of a distributed ecosystem of partners and vendors and suppliers and such. So you have just-in-time inventory you know, around the world, uh, run through kind of manufacturing around the world. You use ADP for your payroll. You use Salesforce for, um, for kind of uh, sales management. You do um, you know, a variety of outside legal, you know, outside AI-driven analytics on who knows what. And so what happened is the, um, the way business looks has changed, but the way people approach security really hasn't. Um, and it's starting to now, but it's been very much still focused on how do I secure my environment? How do I make sure we have the right passwords, the right um, protections, et cetera? 
But then you send all your sensitive information to a breadth of other companies. And what CyberGX helps you do is understand what is the risk that exists outside your borders. And so when you're sending all of your sensitive customer data or all the analytics around a new jet engine or whatever it is to some other provider, how do you know they have the adequate protections in place to, um, to safeguard it? The example I can give you is um, you probably have an iPhone, as do most people. Um, Apple designs the iPhone, protects it like crazy. But they don't actually build it. Right? So they, they have protected that like crazy. But then they send those designs over to Foxconn to go build them. And um, if I'm a hacker, I want to go build my knockoff iPhone. Apple's like Fort Knox. I'm going to look at their supply chain and say, where else would they have sent those designs? And I'm going to try and hack one of them. Uh, or similarly, you see some of the uh, even the more notorious uh, things like Dragonfly most recently in the, um, the, um, the utility space. They basically we went for third-party SCADA providers and others as a way to get in to other um, companies. So that attack surface is massively bigger than most um, security programs have focused on. We're helping people scale to really address and understand that. Yeah, it, it comes a lot to, to really kind of understanding the risk that your organization has, not only with the data you have, but who has access and, and where that kind of data sprawl is. I mean, we're more in a distributed environment, as you said, things are going to cloud, third-party providers. It's really the only way like you can scale as an entrepreneur, or even a larger enterprise. Uh, but I think traditionally, uh, many organizations that I've come across with in, in my history of doing security assessments always push back a little bit and say, well, Anna, what do we need? Why do we need to worry about cybersecurity? We don't have credit cards data. And I always say it's, it doesn't have to be financial data. If you're making money off information, we're in the you know, cliches that say the information age, somebody else is going to want that data. That's right. So it's, is that mentality starting to mature where it's starting to people, are you seeing, appreciate that more? So I think it, it, you're, you're kind of cascading that um, <clears throat> without a doubt, people are paying more attention to cybersecurity. That, I mean, budgets are skyrocketed in that sense. And a lot of that is just the press mentions of breaches and such and understanding what's out there. Boards are now saying, wait a minute, what, if we get breached, that's a you know, X million dollar impact to the business. That's real. And you know, for small businesses, it can put you out of business. For large businesses, you're talking 100, 200, 300 million dollars of value lost. Uh, in some cases, a lot more. And so people are definitely paying attention to it. The kind of greater awareness of cyber you know, breaches and such has, has contributed to that. The next iteration of that is, okay, now I'm seeing more and more third-party breaches. And one of the things that's kind of been really helping drive the growth of, of CyberGRX is literally between 60 to 80% of reported breaches today involve a third party. I'm a, ha I'm a hacker. I'm going to follow the path of least resistance. If I come and I know that you've spent all your time kind of fortifying your environment, I'm not going to try and break in. I'm going to look for where you send that information. I'm going to go there. Or I'm going to look for the back door that you left open or whatever it is as my way in, which could be a third-party direct connection or other things of that sort. And so hackers have evolved, and now the defenses have to evolve. Yeah, one of the things that I've seen, too, is professionally, particularly professional service firms, like law firms that did a lot of work in that vertical for a while, fighting me tooth and nail, saying, you know, you're, you're over, you know, you're crying crying wolf here, there's no, there's no real risk to it. So I said, you know, look, who's, who's on your clientele list? Particularly in New York, it was all the major fi financial institutions. And they said, yeah, but so what? What, you know, what do we really have there? So I'm like, all their sensitive data. <laughs> and it wouldn't be that hard for me to go into public record systems, find out who your clients are, craft something that wouldn't be that hard and go after you. And it'd be a lot easier to take you down than an organization that spends a quarter billion dollars a year in, in, on security. 
So it's getting a lot of these organizations to think like that. But the one thing that I noticed that was really pushing them to was compliance. You know, whether it was being mandated by a three-letter agency or by contractual compliance, all of a sudden they said, oh, wait, we're a vendor. And particularly for like law firms, they don't want to think of themselves as a vendor. They're a trusted advisor. But the reality is a lot of us are vendors uh, to other organizations. And they found themselves filling out a lot of these questionnaires and then saying, oh, my God, this is a huge time suck. Is it even worth it to do it? And I guess that's been part of the problem you guys are trying to solve too, is not having to wash and repeat and do the same process over and over again, where it just creates this um, business bad taste for people that are getting these vendor questionnaires. So how, how's that being simplified? Because we're all going to be vendors one day or another. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you're, you're spot on. And that's the, um, the issue is that resistance is kind of moving away. It's now becoming standard practice in business to have a cyber risk assessment of some kind. Um, and as a result of that, the number of assessments out there is increasing massively. ADP, who's one of our partners, um, did just over 4,000 cyber risk assessments last year. Uh, that means they responded to 4,000 requests, which is huge. It's a huge amount of time. And the thing is, every single one of them is asking kind of the same stuff. They know one person may say select ABC, one person rate on the scale of one to 10, another person says write a text base, whatever it is, <clears throat> but they're all asking the same data. Um, and that's massively inefficient. And so what you're seeing now is that first stages of people paying attention to that ecosystem, they're going through the fits and starts of how do you actually address it appropriately. Um, what CyberGRX does is um, a very simple concept of saying, we'll go do a single assessment of a company, we'll house that data centrally and allow it to be used multiple times. So kind of the ADP example there, we have a single assessment of ADP on our platform. They can then share that with 4,000 companies versus having to re respond to each one of them. Um, the other side of it is the consumers of this information. You know, our typical customer will come and say, you know, we have 2,000 third parties we work with, or some number. Honestly, the typical Fortune 500 companies between five and 10,000. Um, so we have 2,000 third parties, but it's really only 20% that we think are cyber relevant. So it's you know we have you know, whatever that is 400. Um, <clears throat> sorry, make do math on the fly here. Uh, 400 companies. Or so, but we've only got one guy, and he did you know 27 assessments last year. We have this huge exposure. We're not able to do that. the program we designed, sending out an Excel spreadsheet with one person who processes them does not scale to 400, does not scale to 2000 or whatever it is. And, um, and so they're kind of stuck and they're basically doing the best they can and figuring out, okay, here's what I'll, I'll try and get these as many done. So what CyberDirect enables them to do, because we've already done all that data collection, it's now a matter of how many do you want? How do you want to build that data set that you can consume? And you allow a single person to scale up to managing 400 and then filter them by different portfolio elements. You mentioned law firms. Um, actually, probably the most commonly assessed uh, companies on our platform are law firms. We have hundreds of law firms assessed on our platform. And um, one of the things you can do now is if you're a large Fortune 500 company, is instead of saying, okay, I did an assessment of a law firm, looked okay, I'll talk to them again in a year. You can basically bring up your portfolio and say, let me look, here, here are the 120 law firms that we use. Let me um, you know, filter them by who we spent over a million dollars with. And now let me sort them best to worst on data protection controls or other things. You can actually start to run portfolio analytics because it's a standardized data assessment that we're doing, uh, or, or security assessment. And so you can start to actually manage risk in a way that helps you identify, wait a minute, that's one of our biggest law firms. And look at what that looks like. I gotta, I gotta deal with that. Or I need to put some compensating controls in place, or I need to work with them to help them improve their security versus not even, either not being aware or never having to assess them to begin with. So it's helping people evolve. And it's, it's a growing, you know, we've, we've worked with 
full ends of the spectrum on very mature built out programs that people are literally just scratching the surface and that's within the fortune 50. What do you, uh, what, is there any surprise that you think like, wow, this is a, this is maybe a vendor that's coming to our platform and we, we weren't even thinking would be uh, a popular one or any, any ones that are, that stick out as being kind of those, those outliers. You know, it's interesting. The, um, the ones that you would expect are some of the more popular ADP, Aetna, Salesforce, Workday, uh, Cognizant, Tech Mahindra, Accenture, like they're all some of our more commonly requested assessments. Um, there are a couple kind of small ones here that will pop up more than, we're like, oh, that's interesting. Um, literally people who kind of collect data, there's one company that collects data for investment firms. Um, and it's basically someone like CyberGRX, we're the portfolio company of multiple different venture capital firms. They want to aggregate all their data on these firms. Um, those guys are actually being used by countless people who do these types of assessments. We have one that's been shared, you know, 40 something times. Um, and so that definitely uh, adds up. Interestingly, one of the things that we also help companies do is if you think through the, the chain of how you manage third party risk, the first thing you have to do is know who your third parties are. I say that somewhat in jest, but not many, not many people truly know who all their third parties are. But say you do know all your third parties, you now need to tier them in some way. You don't want to do the same thing for everyone. Right? So if you have 100, you have 1,000, you have 10,000, you're not going to go and say, okay, same assessment, same thing. got to understand, do I share confidential information with them? Do I allow them on site? Do I uh, have a direct connection with them, et cetera? And we have some tools in an automated way can actually help generate a kind of a tiering and a prioritization. That's actually been one of the most valuable things we've provided uh, companies of all sizes. It helps them just tackle that problem for the first, say, okay, that 1,000 companies is really only, you know, 212 that I need to look at. Okay, I just distilled that down. Um, and that kind of, and then that iteratively, then you'll order kind of more detailed assessments on them and then say, okay, here's the residual risk I have after that. How should I think about managing that? What should I do? Yeah, one of the things I found interesting too along that is, um, you know, working with organizations and say you do a more broad-based assessment. I'm going and I'm saying, okay, well, what, who, who manages your vendor management program where your policies and procedures around that, it varies. It varies wildly from different organizations. Where do you see it kind of maybe rolling up under? Is it more IT, compliance, CFO? Which would you see kind of groups more of the vendor risk management? Yeah, the um, our customers most often the chief information security officer or someone on his or her team who runs third-party risk. Um, that will typically be part of a procurement process. And so it's a, they'll ask questions, okay, then it kicks out hey, this needs a security review or to, uh, to move forward, um, or the um, CISO is now running a kind of third-party review. We have one uh, extraordinarily large um, technology company that basically says, we've got just over 2,000 third parties that we've been dependent upon for the last decade or so that we've never done a risk assessment of. We need to work through that backlog. And so that's a CISO-driven initiative to say, let me just identify what this is, and then I can go back to the business and determine what's necessary. The other side of it is, um, you know, in the, in the flow of new deals, um, most people when they're starting a third party risk program will say, okay, first thing we'll do is all new deals. And so anything new they started versus dealing with the old. Um, and so that's typically a procurement process where they'll say, okay, here are the three gates that if it has confidential information or a PHI or whatever it is, then that kicks out a security review. And then we help the security team effectively fulfill their role within the procurement process. So. Uh, influencers in our purchase decision will be risk managers or procurement leads or um, uh, people in kind of, I guess, chief procurement officer or something. Yeah. So a lot of it, uh, it goes back to it's, it's managing business risk. It's, right. it's not, you know, and really it distills down to just about every area of information security. It's 
the unsexy term of risk management. I mean, if we just went and said, hey, next week's RSA, we're going to a risk management conference, you probably wouldn't get the Moscone Center filled as much as it does. Yeah. Do you think sometimes the language that we use around cybersecurity in general can also kind of harm us in that way because we, we you know, try to put lipstick on a pig sometimes? Um, I think so. It's interesting when you think about what can be distracting, if you will, and, and there was a joke, so we think about RSA, so last year we were in an innovation sandbox. They kind of pick uh, 10 um, up-and-coming startups. And our whole uh, theme for our thing was we're bringing sexy back. I'm still a little bit embarrassed for what I had to walk up to the, there. But uh, the, the whole thing was it is not sexy. Like what, what we're doing right now, we're collecting data on how people operate their cybersecurity programs. We're aggregating it and building risk tools to help you identify. That is not cool, you know anomalous behavior detection to find the bad actor or, you know, gate analysis for authentication. Like those are really cool and, and sexy things to talk about. What we're talking about right now is do your vendors patch correctly? Do they have, you know, appropriate password policies in place and, and you know, rights management and such? And it's simple, basic stuff. Do they have a phishing policy? Um, which is, you know, 80 to 90% of breaches start with a fish. Like if your vendor doesn't have any phishing awareness training, that's a problem. And the other thing is I saw a stat last year that was something like 85% of reported breaches last year could have been stopped by regular patching. And so that's not sexy. That's not, no one goes in, I can't wait to patch today. You yeah. know, it's much more like I want to go. And so, but you got to understand whether, whether or not that exists. When I come back to what we're offering people, um, our goal is to allow people to have an informed risk-based decision. That's it. We're not telling them what to do. We're basically giving you the information you need to decide, is this a risk I'm willing to tolerate? I can inform my business partner as to, this is what you're taking on by bringing vendor X in. Is that you know, the business value outweigh the potential exposure? And just be able to not, uh, knowingly have that conversation versus a bit of a guess. When you look at some of the, the, the newer compliance things that are coming online, you know, GDPR is obviously the, the big one we've all talked about, but we've seen more and more state regs. New York State started it a couple years ago. We've seen Colorado, California, more and more states. Do you think that's going to, <clears throat> yeah, I guess, push people more towards a meaningful management of their risk? It will. It's, um, <clears throat> it definitely catalyzes people in, in terms of moving forward or things that they've sat on. I mean, one of the interesting things, we don't have to explain the problem that we're trying to solve to anyone. They know it exists. The question is, are they ready to solve it? Do they want to engage and do so? And what are their other priorities? And going back to it's not that sexy. Like, it's, you know, this isn't the can't wait to solve third-party risk today. Um, but it's, it's been there. When you're seeing like NYDFS or some of these other are really requiring that third-party management or, or GDPR, which basically says you're liable if uh, your third party is breached with your sensitive uh, customer data, it's starting to make people focus much more on that. Um, one of the key things to appreciate, though, is uh, compliance does not equal security. And it's, a, it's often, um, I guess, a... Uh, false security blanket that some people say, oh, well, we, we did, you know, they were PCI compliant. I think Experian was PCI compliant. And, and, other, and so it's not necessarily, okay, I met that. And, and it was actually explained to me really well by um, uh, Jim Routh, who was the, the chief security officer at Aetna. And basically, he's like, look at the cycle it goes through is, you know, new problems are identified. It needs to actually reach a level of a kind of incident rate that it becomes a me meaningful issue. It needs to be synthesized, presented to Congress or whomever as here's an issue, goes through a comment period, and then is now instituted in. This is now in addition to uh, PCI or HIPAA or you know NIST or whatever it is, and that's like two to three year cycle. And so by then people are onto something new. 
It's so, so you can't, like, compliance is really helpful. It drives that awareness, it drives people to focus in on, on this, and establishing a third-party program is important. But even if you look at some of the regulations you, you just described, in terms of the requirement for people to have a third-party program, it's still pretty basic language. It's yes, have a third-party program, yeah. do some level of review, and be good. I mean, it, it really is that general. Um, and so it's, it's iteratively getting there. It definitely helps push the broader mass, but people need to focus on, this is a real security risk. You're gonna lose dollars, you're gonna be exposed. Um, the target breach was really powerful for this because you saw executives get fired as a result of the lack of oversight there. And people said, wait a minute, I, I don't wanna get fired. And you know, when I was at Bridgewater at that time, um, I remember my CEO was like, hey, could this happen to us? And unfortunately, my answer was, yeah, it could. Like, we don't have a robust enough program to manage that. Which you kind of touched on some of, some of the things too, you know, when we talk about compliance and security, but there are these frameworks and different types of, let's say, standards or best practices that get in place depending on how you want to characterize that. Are there ones that you feel are more suited for kind of that bell curve of small, medium enterprise businesses, you know, where you look at some of the things like ISO or NIST 800 or kind of large, are, are there ones that are going to be more digestible to smaller firms? Yeah, it's interesting to say. So I still think NIST 853 is probably one of the best out there in terms of the comprehensiveness. Now, there are a variety of different iterations and, and things you can add on to that. Um, and so that is a, a good foundational piece. The, uh, the key of that is digesting it to the appropriate level for an organization. Um, one of the things that I thought was pretty, pretty exciting about what we did here um, was to basically, the way we do an assessment is, uh, well, first of all, we said, okay, assessments, and you alluded to this earlier, no one enjoys a risk assessment. It's, it's a painful process. It's, it's excruciating in some ways. Um, how do you make it as tolerable as possible? So the first thing we thought was, what's another excruciating process that has gotten easier? And so we look at taxes. So Intuit built TurboTax that, such that I can sit down in a weekend and go through my taxes versus, I'm not sure if you remember, but like filling out those yeah. newspaper print like things, those things were awful. And so, um, and so we actually spoke to the team, said, okay, what'd you guys do? And the, the, the big thing that they did was, they called them gating questions, was they asked things, do you have children? If so, we're gonna ask about childcare tax deductions and such. If not, that whole section collapses away and they move on, that never shows up. And therefore, your experience is streamlined. Um, so we ask very similar gating questions along the way. We'll say, do you have a data loss prevention program? If you say no, or what is that? Okay, I'm not gonna ask you if you have DLP on the endpoint. I'm not gonna ask you how often you update the rules. And that collapses out a whole portion. Um, or if you say yes, it expands. It said, here are the subcontrols that would contribute to DLP. And then here are what we call measures of control effectiveness for each of those strength, coverage, and timeliness measures for each one of those. Um, what that does though is that same assessment I can give to Salesforce, who goes all the way down the detail, and then I can give it to a 20-person law firm who will say, no, we don't have DLP. Good. And, they, and so it expands or contracts based on that. To your original question, our, our tier three assessment, which kind of starts, it kind of stops at that, do you have a control basis, doesn't go into the granular detail, is a great tool for smaller business or companies that never have done a security risk assessment before. And we've actually had a ton of companies use that or, or you know, one of our ordering customers has said, please come on the platform, do this. And they said, this is the first time we've done a cyber risk assessment. You know, what is dual factor authentication that you guys said was one of our highest exposures or things like that. And um, so that's a framework that's very easy and people get it done about a week or so, uh, really like about five hours of time, but just kind of spread across there to kind of get that done. Yeah, it seems to be more, uh, that, that one particularly seems to be adopted more and used more, used quite a bit myself. Uh, but you did touch on things like PCI and I think 
you know, I, I always have kind of a, a mixed bag of emotions with PCI because you want something there, but you definitely see there are things that are um, so controlled in the compliance space that they sometimes don't step out to look at some of the other issues because they say, oh, we're only looking at this. So how do you, you know, how do we, how do we get things to be a little bit more looser so there can be that flexibility where you can say, okay, in my situation, here's what it applies. So it's not this uh, dogmatic thing where, okay, everybody has to have this one thing or we set things up to, we can change it because we're making things backward compatible for SSL for the next 40 years. Right. No, and and you're uh, essentially, and you have kind of standards proliferation out there, right? So it's you know PCI, it's HIPAA, it's ISO, it's NERC, it's it's anything that you might see out there. Um, but to your point, the and it's interesting. Part of our approach to this, you know, it's it's somewhat ironic. Our answer to addressing the proliferation of standards was come up with a new one, which is our cyber X assessment. Um, but the way we did it is we sat down with our design partners, who are companies like Aetna and ADP and uh, Bloomberg and others, and um, and we said, okay, forget about any regulatory compliance. How do you make a risk-based decision? How do you go about informing your business and saying, this is what I want to move forward or not? Uh, what data drives that? And we had that conversation with each one of our partners and worked that into kind of an aggregate. And then we brought them all together and said, okay, guys, here, five, you know, two of you ask about it this way, three of you ask about it this way. Here are the, the questions. Here's the core of what you're getting to. Is this correct? Let's get, let's get. And that's how we built our assessment. So it's a risk-based assessment. It is not a compliance assessment. Um, what we then did is said, okay, let's map this to about 20-something different compliance standards just to make sure we're covering conceptually what they're looking for. So I'm not going to tell you, here's every question that PCI assessment looks, but are they asking about access management? Yes, okay, we got that covered. Are they asking about virtualization or whatever? Yes, we have that covered. And so, and we use that to expand the assessment out. And that's our framework. So it is not a compliance assessment. It isn't a perfect match to any of the known standards out there. Um, but we can give you a pretty strong indication as to whether or not you'd be PCI compliant or HIPAA compliant, et cetera, based on taking our assessment. But it does give you and focus in on a lot of the questions in other areas that are really critical to, um, to making a risk-based uh, judgment. Some of that comes down to, interestingly, separating out kind of maturity of a, a program and the effectiveness of the controls deployed. And so if you want to understand the adaptability to new environments, if you want to look at the maturity of that team, um, one of our kind of largest customers, one of the more important things for him is to look at um, how quickly and frequently do people do post-mortem of incidents. That, to him, is a strong indicator of the maturity of their program. And so we have full detail around that, and that's something that in our platform he can then prioritize and say that's a control that's really relevant for me. Well, it's, it's interesting. I almost look at it the way I even try to pitch it to some folks. Or, you know, if we come and do an assessment and, and some kind of risk-based assessment, this is not a death sentence. You know, we're coming in to kind of measure where you are to say, you know, it's your annual checkup. You know, are you, are you still smoking a pack a day? <laughs> what, <laughs> what other types of risky behavior you're doing yeah. and what, what do we need to do to change your, your kind of cyber hygiene and health and kind of drive it in that this is an ongoing process? Do you still find that there's an issue with a lot of organizations take it as, you know, a rating too heavily and not look at this as necessarily, you know, a, a lifetime choice that you have to make? Yeah, it's hard because um, particularly when you think of uh, the kind of investment framework, if you go to a board, and most boards still aren't as cyber literate as you want them to be, but you go and say, hey, I'm going to invest $10 million and I can build this new factory that's going to have payback in two years and it's going to drive this whole new product line. It's great. Cool. Or I'm going to go invest $10 million in new XYZ cyber product that's going to reduce the probability of event not happening. And it's just a harder sell in that sense. And so 
it, what you're getting is people starting to realize that they, the outcome, the bad outcome is so bad that I need to start investing more. And so that's happening, but it's still a harder conversation there as people are driving their business, particularly as you go down to smaller and medium-sized businesses. And I just read an article the other day about how the exposure, the highest point of exposure typically is the medium-sized business. You know, if you're a bootstrap startup, you're trying to get, the last thing you're doing is like, wait, hey, let me build a robust cybersecurity program. You're like, how do I get my product to market? I can deal with security later. And that's, that's the mindset as, as a lot of these companies do. And thus you create the exposure um, that when you start to get your big customers and now they've sent, okay, here's all of our customer data for your new AI chat bot. But guess what? You built that on a framework that's like completely open and exposed. Someone figures it out, goes in and dig, dig, digs in. So it's an element of understanding. And, and one of the things that a lot of the companies on our platform have done is really t targeted a lot of that kind of medium tier. So it's, it's you know, Salesforce, AWS, Workday, like you know they have robust security programs in place. It's important still to go through and understand, but then you get to that medium tier law firm or analytics provider or uh, new technology, whatever it is, and those are the ones you gotta make sure that they've got the right stuff in place given what you're sharing with them. From our perspective, you know, I go back to what are we trying to do? We're trying to create efficiencies of this data exchange, right? Instead of people just sending lots of emails back and forth with spreadsheets, we're creating that repository of, of shared data. Um, we're a dual-sided platform. I have to make this really powerful for the consumer of that information, give them all the data they need, the analytics to help process that in a good way. I have to make it a good experience for the provider of the data as well, otherwise they're not gonna participate. If you know eBay made it horrible to list you know, whatever, something on the platform, guess what, they go under. You gotta, you gotta navigate both sides of this. And, um, and so we focused a lot on this. This is part of the kind of the TurboTax thing I mentioned before. How do I make this assessment experience as quote unquote enjoyable as possible? Um, but then also how do I help that person, that company recognize the benefits that come for them? And those you know, are additionally, they can share now with multiple people. They can use our platform. And a lot of companies will be introduced to our platform through the first customer who entered orders on them. And they're like, wait, can I use this? Of course you can. And we'll work with them to go share that with 10, 20, 100 other companies. And then they're able to potentially offset, you know, you know, large portion of the assessment pain that they're going through, through one assessment with us. The other is, in many cases, I mentioned this before, it's the first time that they've gone through a cyber risk assessment. We're effectively providing them a free, independent cyber risk assessment. And what are, we didn't talk much about it, but we, we collect kind of data around what do you have, what do you not have. But then we also have a full analytic model that basically says, based on the industry that they're in, current threat environment, historical breaches in that type of industry, here are the control gaps that are most important of the, you know, they have 20 controls they don't have, here are the three that are really most important, the other 17 are best practice, et cetera. And so if I'm a small or a medium-sized company, going back to kind of, uh, I now know these three things, that knocks out 80, 90% of my risk. I can now invest my dollars in that. I otherwise didn't know that. And so we're creating effectively a service in some cases for people. Uh, once again, just trying to make it valuable on both sides. What sounds too is, you know, you're coming from, I'm sure you've dealt with lots of boards <laughs> in your time. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, when I kind of coach, mentor, and do even a CISO role in some organizations, it's, you know, try to go in and not talk about the tech, but talk about the metrics. That's right. And, and what we see a lot of times too are, are highly effective security programs that don't have any measurability. And then they go in front of the board and say, yeah, we're going to need a quarter million dollars this year. And like, for what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think there's, there still seems to be a gap, I would think, with a lot of folks that are particularly coming up from the CIO department, director of IT, and that CISO space that's been heavily tech, not being able to speak the language to the board yep. about metrics and numbers. Um, 
are, it, it, and to me, that seems to be one of the bigger problems that we have in cybersecurity. It's not necessarily the gap, it's the language we're using to get what we need. Um, would you agree with that? It's a very leading question. So, yeah. <laughs> throwing up softballs, oh, yeah. but yeah. No, yeah, no I mean, you're, you're absolutely, it's, it's hard for people to understand. So there's a measurability. There's also just the typical CISO uh, loves technology. And they'll go in and be like, let me tell you about this really cool piece. And you've lost the you know, septuagenarian board member who's, you know still has his emails printed out for him type of thing. And it's like, okay, it's not going to work that way. Um, and so you, you, you need to really think about Okay, how do I communicate in that language? Risk is a language people understand, investment risk or cyber risk. So let's talk about the exposure that we see, and here's what we're doing to address that. Here's how our program looks, and this is where benchmarking and other tools become a very valuable element. Um, one of the um, other insights that came from our work with our design partners was the ability, as you kind of scale up from not doing just 30 assessments but 300 to 3,000, is that comparability or understanding that um, and so when we, we actually went back and redid our whole assessment approach to make it purely structured data. And what I mean by that is when we talk about a, um, a, um, someone has like an incident response program, a typical assessment today says, tell me about your incident response program. And someone writes a whole paragraph and you know, all this stuff. Ours will say an incident response program has up to nine components. Which of these things do you do? If you say, I do this, that's a measure, the measures of control effectiveness, the strength, coverage, or timeliness. And so strength would be, what do you measure? Click all that apply. You know, what percentage covered is, you know, by this um, service or whatever it is? And then timeliness, how quickly do you respond? Or how often do you update rules or whatever it is? And what that does is it creates a data set on the back end. So it's fully sortable, filterable, et cetera. That also makes our scoring fully numerical. So you can look at literally a comprehensive security program and say, okay, here's how I stack up, both in kind of a control effectiveness and maturity of the program. On a, you know, maturity, we do a scale of one to five, following the list there, and then the, the effectiveness kind of a zero to 100. And we have several companies who use that data set to report to their board and say, here's what our CyberGear assessment looks like, here's where we're gonna be focusing, and here, because they've helped us prioritize this, and next quarter when I report to you, you're gonna see a delta across these different things. You've now made this very communicable, very easy to kind of show and track, and um, you can also hold a security team accountable with this. We have some partners we're working with right now who want to roll that concept out more broadly to bigger kind of Fortune 500 boards to say, here's a standard, easy way to hold a security team accountable. And now as our exchange volume has grown, we can also now provide benchmarks. And not just, here's how you are across the global ecosystem, but here's how you are across um, you know, law firms in the Midwest. Uh, or things of that sort. So you can get to very specific benchmarks to say, you know, look, while you may only be at a 66% effectiveness here, that's above the average, which is 45 or whatever. So you can start to benchmark where you are and set kind of thresholds as to where you might want to go. It's a good visibility, which is, I think, important in context, really. I mean, because that's, I think, what question I get asked a lot is, well, how do we compare to somebody else? That's exactly right. And we're, we're in the process, uh, actually, at RSA, we're going to be finalizing, I believe, some of the details around a initiative with a large... Um, industry group who's going to be running a best, effectively a benchmarking exercise with their members using CyberGRX. And so we're going to ask each person to fill out a CyberGRX assessment and then use that to actually build a report that says, here of our ecosystem, here's how you stack up, here's what that looks like, here are the trends, here are the controls that are generally weak. I and mean, that's, that's a powerful insight that we provide um, that literally I don't think exists in any program that I've seen to date. If you load 100 third parties into the CyberGRX platform and, and run through assessments of them, you can basically say across those companies, what are the most common gaps? Let me filter that by the companies that are in my HR department only. 
what are the most common gaps? Wow, they have no vulnerability management controls. They have no uh, perimeter control. That's interesting. How do I think about that as I try and manage the risk of what data I might share through HR? With uh, now, one of the things that I want to kind of jump back to is like kind of starting a company. You know, it's, it's, we talked about what what other people <laughs> do when they when they become vendors, but you know, you you at some point decide you're going to take this crazy leap and become a <laughs> a startup. What are some of the risks and rewards that you see in doing that? You know, because I think that's that's a common thing where a lot of people, particularly in cybersecurity, say, oh, "I'm just going to you know, go do my own thing," but I don't think they understand what they're really getting into. Yeah. Um, you got to be a little bit crazy to start your own company, um, but it's fun because you get to shape and address what um, what you think really can create value. And um, instead of being like, "Yeah, this is what our company," you think, "Okay, I see a problem. I'm going to try and address that. I can actually shape the, the path and direction we're going on." Um, in the cyberspace, in particular, what you do see is a lot of people build what I would call features versus companies. They build a really cool, specific thing. Um, you see this with actually a lot of the Israeli companies because they're so segmented off in the 8200 or whatever. They say, here's a really cool feature that I can build because, and, and by the way, some of the best cyber practitioners you've ever seen, but limited scope. And so they'll build a feature there and they're acquired usually within a year or two. Um, and then there are others who build kind of more of a platform uh, view or a more standalone product. Um, that's harder. And it's, you know, it requires a ton of kind of building out, understanding what that problem is, iterating, you know, despite how smart you may be or what experience you have, you, you still don't actually know what your customers fully want until you actually really get out there and test and, and uh, got to be ready to kind of pivot and adapt on that uh, to build it out. But I got to tell you, what's really exciting here is like, I walk into a room and I know I'm going to help a customer. You know, and I can't say that it was always the case in some of the stuff and companies I was working for where like, okay, we got to meet this quota, we got to push this product. Like, I know <clears throat> that we may not be the perfect solution for someone, but man, we're going to move their product, their program forward. We're going to help them do their job so much better. And that's a fun excitement. And we talked earlier about some of the people here. Like, that's a motivating factor for the employees here to know that we're building something that's truly making people manage and, and do their jobs better. And that's fulfilling. And so that's. It's fun to start your own company to be able to really drive and ensure that value. And as you staff for people, look for, do you look for that passion too? That I guess, what are some of the characteristics you look for when, when trying to bring people on to incorporate into your DNA? Yeah, it, it very much is that. We're, we're, we want people to be along for the journey. And, it's, and I'll tell you that we talked earlier about um, kind of moving and why Denver. One of the cool things that I've seen here talking to other CEOs of cyber or other technology companies across the country is... People here join with the intent of building a company versus I'm going to go work at <clears throat> Google for a year and then I'm going to go to Twitter for another six months and then I'm going to go and bouncing around to kind of build your resume for whatever you want to go. Here it's, hey, that's a cool company. I don't really care what my title is. Let's go. And that's fun. And so we look definitely for that. Probably the most important thing is um, a desire to learn. We want people to come in who will be unhappy if they're in the same role in two years. Um, it's a matter, it can't, can't be you know, moved over in three weeks, but it's a matter of, okay, I'm here, I want to absorb the information, I want to figure out how I can contribute. And we have a, a heavy debate culture, but a constructive debate culture. It's the, the concept of, if something doesn't make sense to you, like ask until it does. Either you've identified an issue that the you know, person didn't previously see, or if you try and go execute against something without fully understanding, you're not going to do it well. So kind of push and, and drive for that clarity and that understanding into the best idea wins concept. It's fun. It's intellectually stimulating and exciting, and you learn and you grow through that. 
Gotcha. You know, I'm also you know a consumer of uh, a lot of, a lot of the business books that have been out there for companies. Are, are there particular you know again books that people could reference that you might have looked at as source or kind of canon material for yourself? They said, wow, this, this you know, there's a particular idea or concept that you would drive people forward in entrepreneurship. Yeah, it's um, I, I would caution. All of them should be taken, you know, as like digest and yeah. process versus follow as canon. Right, right. Um, you know, and look, I spent four years at, at Bridgewater. Like Ray Dalio's principles made a lot of sense to me. Um, I believe some of them are really powerful. Some of them falter when put into practice. Um, but so that's <clears throat> that's been very much influenced for the culture we have here and for the way I think about a lot of things in life. Um, and I think um, there are a variety of other books. Even even more recently, um, uh, and I forget the name of the uh, Sean Thompson, the surfer, wrote a book called The Code. I just uh, and it was one of those very simple concepts of basically saying write down twelve statements that start with "I will" and hold yourself accountable to it. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing that centers you in, the, in a given day. Um, everyone today is so busy on everything. It's and I got my email, and I've checked my watch, and all this kind of stuff. Versus, how do you start your day to say, what am I going to get done today? How am I going to focus on this? What are the higher level goals that I'm um, making sure everything anchors to versus getting caught in the swirl of back-to-back meetings and all this other silliness? Um, simple things like that, it sounds kind of basic, but when you actually pull back from it, it can be incredibly powerful to make sure you're on the right track versus, wow, I had a really busy week. I'm not sure what I actually did. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I wrote, it's, Essentialism was one of those books that I was kind of dawned with me on that. And I, was, I wrote this thing kind of pairing a lot of this to, you know, and I, I look at a lot of things of entrepreneurship, like how to get things done, productivity with cybersecurity, because there's a lot of distractions in life. And when you do wake up at whatever time you wake up and you say, these are the things I want to get done today, whether it be in your personal life or your security program, there's a lot of competing uh, interests. So how do you figure out what are those big things that you have to move through? And I, I think that's, that's a big thing too is just yeah there's a you know again we talked about NIST 800 and there's you know 18 19 control groups and subgroups like where do you start and so it's trying to fit find those things both in business and your program that are going to be the things that move the needle forward in big steps well I would even push that a step further is to say when you think about that daily weekly whatever it is it's it's make sure you pull yourself above the tasks up to the goal like do I want to achieve NIST 853 why what am I trying to achieve by doing that? What's what's the overarching goal to do that? Because if you get lost in the task, sometimes you go off some path and you're like, wait a minute, I actually did all those things, but that didn't actually get to where I wanted to be. And so it's you know it's it's 10 or 15 minutes in the morning and say, okay, what's the goal? What am I trying to get done today? What am I am I trying to get the team you know fired up and I'm actually just going to walk the floor for an hour or some of that sort? Is it I'm what am I what am I trying to achieve here? versus, okay, here's my checklist of the 10 things and the six emails I got to send out and all these yeah. types of things. And it's hard. I mean, it's, it's hard to stay focused on that, but it can be really powerful. Very cool. Well, Fred, thank you so much for your time today. Where can people find you uh, online? Uh, it's www.cybergrx.com and uh, LinkedIn and a variety of Twitter and all those other things as well. But uh, would uh, would happily uh, talk to any, any additional questions on this. We're, we're excited about what we're building. It, it's yeah. neat to see the community uh, that CyberGRX is creating. And one of the neat things about it is by making it a um, an easier way of sharing information, you're seeing greater collaboration between companies. So just a, kind of a last piece on this is, you know, if I used to do a risk assessment and said, okay, here's 27 gaps, what people would say is, like, go, here, go fix these. And now I'm a medium-sized business. I'm like, I don't know what to do here. Yeah. And either I lose the business or I fudge it a little or who knows what happens. Or the next there. day another questionnaire comes Correct. in. <laughs> so in ours, it's like, okay, here's 27. Here are the three that matter. 
And then that company can say, and here's the impact you have for me. Let me help you figure out how to address those. Let's let's do that. And you're seeing such a better um, engagement. And then if you don't spend all your time just filling out the next questionnaire, you can actually really work to make sure this one's correct. And then spend your time talking to your customers about here's what I'm doing. Here's how we're going to work together. Versus let me get the next 15 done this week or whatever it yeah. is. Awesome, Fred. Well, I'll be sure to put uh, the links to CyberJRX in your LinkedIn on the show notes. But I, I again, greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Doug, thanks very so much. I right. really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.